thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey, Sunshine, let me ask you a question. Sure, Jello, what's up? What would you say was the most difficult mission you performed in the fleet in your F-18? Ooh, you know what? I'd, I'd have to say close air support. I mean, it's just so demanding, you know, and so consequential. That's right. And when you're doing close air support, who are you working with? Predominantly working with the guys on the ground, mm-hmm. right? So there's a guy on the ground that's going to be on the radio. and He's going to direct my bombs, even though I still kind of own the bombs, release the bombs, but he's in charge of where they go. And what's that guy's name? Oh, we call him a Joint Terminal Attack Controller, or JTAC. Ooh, very good. And if he's an aviator, we call him? Well, then we'll call him a FAC-A, so Forward Air Controller Airborne. You betcha. And that, sir, is what we're talking about this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Hit it. I'm looking at danger close now. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here are your hosts, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilots, Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair. All right, I love that song by our musician, Jaime Lopez. Nice job, Jaime. Excellent. All right, Sunshine, you are correct, sir. We're talking Ford Air Controllers with our good buddy, retired U.S. Navy Captain Dave Culpepper, call sign Chili. And we'll get to that interview in just a little bit. In the meantime, what's going on with you, dude? Hey, man, so unfortunately, well, getting old has taken its toll. Oh. Yep, I herniated a disc. So, Uh-oh. old man, I'm 44, but I walk around like I'm 70. It's pretty fun. <laughs> too so, much sitting? <laughs> too much everything, dude. <laughs> I was at the gym, I heard a pop, uh, and now I walk funny. So, all right. uh, that's that. Okay. How about you, Jello? What's going on? Oh, man, everything and anything. I've been on reserve with my airline all summer, which means there are days I don't know what my schedule is. In fact, I could get a call right now while we're recording this oh. to go show up and go the fly bat real phone? Quick. That's right. So, just in case the bat phone rings, you got to go don your cape and go <laughs> that's right well a tie and a hat in this case oh, yes. okay now everything's going great man the show is Excellent. growing like crazy we've got folks coming aboard to help with different things like our audio quality we'll talk about that at the end we've got folks helping us with advertising and sponsorship so you might hear more about that in the future and i bought this newfangled zoom handy dandy handhold recorder sunshine so our audio woes from yesteryear gone Nice. And so you bought it. It wasn't given to you, right? So that's correct. Talking about our Patreon guys to give them a shout out to them, huh? Oh, they help keep the show going. That's (laughs) right. They put us in this good equipment. Yeah. And so, you know, we're a professional show now. We can't be claiming to be shade tree podcasters. We got to sound good. So anyway, also, I've got a son leaving for college this week. That's Ooh, crazy. Yeah. Dude, first one out of the nest. Yep, yep. Very he heads cool. off. In fact, I think his first day of school is with the day this episode airs. Really? So, yeah. Bittersweet or just bitter? Uh, or just sweet? <laughs> well, he's not that far away. He'll be on the other side of L.A., and I'm sure he'll still help with the show because he's been doing that since the beginning. But yeah, it's kind of weird. The house will probably be a little quieter, but yeah, yeah just that's a little. the way it goes. Yep. 
Golly. So let's see what else is going on. Uh, oh, yeah. We had a new musing post last yes. Monday on the in-between Monday on what is a good fighter pilot. And that was based on a question posed to me. Really caught me off guard during my session with Mike on aircrew interview. You did a couple of those. Yeah, I like Mike. He's a yeah. lot of fun. So, yeah. yeah. So the musing, if you will, was simply some reflection on how I answered that and, eh, you know, a little more explanation on why I answered it the way I did and then some help from some other folks that lent some ideas on what makes a good fighter pilot. So head on over to our website, look for the musing tab and check that out. And I'd offer up though, Jell-O, though an eloquent answer you provided in your musing, obviously, but Thanks. it's not only good for fighter pilots, right? Anything with kind of high performance jobs, I would say, it's really... You're going to see. I mean, I think it's just a good tenants for any kind of performance in a job. And I would argue that I probably wasn't very imaginative, but certainly... No, no, I'm not saying that. Well, I mean, but you're right, though, right? I mean, so things that are good for any high-performance career are the same for a fighter pilot. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah it, so it's it good. Applies. All right, buddy. Well, why don't we do a couple questions? Uh, let's see. You want me to start with you? Yeah, if you don't mind. You want to start with Scott's question? Yeah, we got Scott from Suwannee, Georgia. He wants to know, when are you most likely to get hit with vertigo? He's got a couple parts to this, Sunshine. Let me read it all, and then sure you can thing. jump back to it. All right. In a two-seat aircraft, you can hand over control to the co-pilot. What do you do when you get vertigo in a single-seat jet? I have to think the pattern is an especially bad time to experience it. What was your worst experience with vertigo? Yeah, so Scott from Georgia, thank you very much for the question. So, Jello, I would start off by saying that vertigo is kind of more of a, that spinning dizziness and I would say that's more of a medical condition, but I would call it, we experience spatial disorientation. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. And spatial disorientation is usually happens when there's no visible horizon and there's some kind of acceleration, so whether it be a turn or an increase or decrease in speed. Right. So kind of a vestibular illusion, if you will. I like to say the hardware and the software disagree. Yeah, totally, dude. That's okay. exactly right. So the right. eyes and yes. the ears and the brain and yes. all that. Okay. Yeah, the, the trifecta there, they're not in agreement, if you will. Right. So trifecta, see your pants, the eyes, and the vestibular, <laughs> like you said. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so the uh, most likely for me was actually probably doing our tanking, so recovery tanking, huh. in the clouds at night, and the strobes are turned on. Oh. I kid you not. So it's kind of the, the strobes are messing with you because the, the reflection is bouncing off the clouds. Right. And then we'll also, we could kind of touch on the leans here. So. Mm -hmm. If you're in a, the 25-degree angle bank left-hand turn over the carrier circling for 30 minutes, and then they say 402, left to the downwind, you know, blah, 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 you roll wings level, well, your body kind of achieved equilibrium in a turn. Yeah. So now that you roll wings level, your body may think, if there's no visible horizon, that you actually turn to the right because you went from a left angle of bank to center, if you will, or mm -hmm. level, right? So it's a right angle of bank, so your body starts thinking that you're turning right, and you just got to jump on the gauges, right? That's right. Especially out at the carrier where there's not a lot of cultural lighting. Yeah. In the open ocean, you don't know what's up sometimes. And I mean that literally. And <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one. Okay. Now, talk to us, though, about his assumption that in a two-seat aircraft, like a, let's say an F-18F, that you can just hand over the controls. Uh, not so much. All you can do is verbally say, dude, I got vertigo or whatever you want to call it. I got spatial D. And then the guy in the backseat, ideally, because his life is just as much in jeopardy as yours at that point, mm -hmm. he has no stick to grab onto. So he just has to read back instruments to you and help you focus on the correct instrument. So it's right. all going to be about trusting your instruments. Right? That's right. So he yeah. can be at that point like an audible instrument. Your wings level. You are in a slight descent. You are 30 degrees left. He can tell you what you're doing to try to cage your brain. And then the last thing I would say, Sunshine, is if you get this coming aboard, mm -hmm. then you can call the ball with vertigo. Yeah, absolutely. And That's the right. LSOs will talk you down. 
Yeah, and have you ever, maybe not, not you personally, but have you ever experienced that or someone oh, in the Oh, actually, airway? I have. Oh, yeah. you have? Oh, Yeah, wow. in fact, for whatever reason, there was a couple okay. of nights in a row, I think we were off the coast of Australia, and I just could not get my bearings. And I think partly it was because the ship was heaving a little bit in the seas. Oh, yeah. And so the lights were pulsating, and this, this was my little cameo on that carrier PBS yeah, show. The PBS, yeah, and that's what I was trying to show with a yeah, piece of paper yeah, nice. was the lights kind of pulsating. It really trips your brain out. And so if you just simply said, hey, paddles, help me out, they'll talk you down. Hey, your wing's level, you're on glide slope. Even if you're on and on, they'll just talk you down because in the end, even though they're graded, we want to get everybody aboard safely. So oh, I'm with you. And then there's yep. another spatial D. Have you heard of somatographic illusion? Ooh, yeah. Which is that fancy term for basically your body has a trouble identifying a forward acceleration versus mm -hmm. a pitching up, which is going to come into play on a dark night when you get shot off the catapult. That's right. So the aircraft is accelerating. You feel like you're pitching up maybe more than you should. So you push over. Well, push over means the water comes up to you and meets you. And yep. that's unfortunately how we lost a friend off of the uh, CQ on the Connie. Yep. Back in 2000, yep. so Darren Jewell. But, yeah, so there's that. Well, I think it's what also claimed the lives of the F-14 crew getting out of Nashville Ooh, that time, way back. Stacy Bates? Does that yeah, sound right? I think so. Yeah, yep. yeah you're yep. right. Yep, it's a killer. So got to trust those instruments, and crewmen got to back you up. Yeah, so what was was then, um, I'm assuming, behind the boat was your worst experience with... Yeah, I mean, I never really remember it being a big issue, especially if you're up at altitude just hanging out. You can just, like, shake your head, and it's no big deal. But, of course, when you're about to land on the carrier where inches matter, yeah. well, then... That's the only time it really was an issue for me. Yeah, just real quickly, my one of my worst experiences was actually not me having spatial D, but I was the tanker and my chick, if you will, the guy getting gas had spatial D. So he finishes his give mm -hmm. and then clears off to the right-hand side of my aircraft. And instead of saying put on the right-hand side there and parade or lose cruise, he actually climbs above my jet and actually slimes kind of over top of my jet. So I hear some extra noise as I'm clearing in his wingman on the left, and I look up and I can see the bottom of his aircraft directly above me. Yikes. So um, I had to give some very directive calm, first to his <laughs> wingman who was trying to join, and then to him, and he finally figured out, climbed up, and got away, and then we uh, squared wow. away the situation. Yep. Well, it's dangerous stuff out there, Craziness. that's for sure. Craziness. Yeah, All right. So Thanks, Scott. Hey, why don't we take a phone call next? Hello. My name's Joshua Altman. I'm from uh, Williamstown, Kentucky, point captain. VFA-32 and VF-32. I was there when they transitioned. I just wanted to leave a comment for the show. Um, I get to ask this question a lot, and I, I was listening to your podcast, Maintenance, and other podcasts as well, and I got asked this question again today when I was listening to your podcast, and I thought it would be interesting for the show. Everyone asked me, why did the Navy leave the F-14 Tomcat not upgrade it again for the F-18 Super Hornet? And actually, the biggest thing I was always told working in maintenance was because of the uh, maintenance-to-flight ratio. So for every one-hour flight, it took over 30 man-hours to keep the F-14 up in the air. And I just thought it was an inter interesting conversation piece for you all. And it's a question I get asked all the time because I'm on the maintenance side of things. And because the F-14 was such a legendary aircraft, and that's kind of the reason why I was always told was why we transitioned to the F-18. Thanks. Bye. Well, great question, Joshua. We've had a lot of questions from Kentucky lately. That's kind of fun. You know, again, I don't have faith in big government a lot, but I have to have <laughs> faith that someone made a smart decision on this because when yeah. they look at the cost per flight hour of an F-14, which I want to say, didn't our guests previously say it was in the 50 
some odd man hours per flight hour as far as the yep. maintenance 40 side to 60 of it. maintenance yeah, hours yeah, yeah. per flight hour exactly. plus then the yeah. cost per flight hour yep. and the fact that as an older aircraft the replacement parts the consumables and replaceables and all those were just becoming more expensive and more difficult to acquire absolutely i have to think the decision was smartly made based on all that and not some other ulterior or political or other reason and if it had made sense to upgrade it they would have I don't know. I mean, is that too simple? No, no, totally agree. I think it was a good business decision at the time. And mm-hmm. the metrics, just like you said, are going to be flight hour, really cost per flight hour, which right. we translate early into the maintenance hours per flight hour. Plus the complexity of that antiquated kind of swing wing system, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of parts that can get consumed, if right. you will. The engines also. And just to give you an idea, so you throw out the number of 50 maintenance hours per flight hour, right? Right. So at the time, the last study I saw, um, the F-18, the legacy model, was designed for 20 maintenance hours of flight hour. Okay. And in the uh, Super Hornet was 10 to 15 maintenance hours per flight hour. So you can see that for Super Hornet to a uh, Tomcat, right, is about five times the maintenance right. hours. I don't want to say it's a no-brainer, but yeah, it was a very good business decision. True. Plus, I think there's a point where aircraft age, like any mechanical device, it's not linear. In other words, yeah, right. as things get older, totally. it becomes parabolically down. So it, yeah. they break more. There's more corrosion, as you and I saw at the depot. Yeah. Jets would come <laughs> that in. We and, did. <laughs> oh, man, you pull open the skins on these things. Is that lucky rabbit's foot again? Oh, yeah. gosh, yeah. <laughs> go so, yeah. you know, everything gets, it's just old. I mean, anyone who's dealt with old cars knows about that. Yeah. So that's yeah. just the case. So, Absolutely. yeah, good question, Joshua. Everyone loves the Tomcat, but its time had come. It did. All right, next question is from Matt DeBona. All right. Why don't I ask you this one, buddy? Sure. Can more than one pilot have the same call sign? I was what? listening to the F-8 episode and a name caught my attention. Jungle Jim. My uncle flew F-4s in Vietnam and his call sign was also Jungle Jim. How common is this? Well, firstly, there can only be one Jello. So <laughs> I've only ever met one Jello, but we okay. do have a J-Lo. Oh, that's true. That's true. You're yeah, right. He's um, coming up, actually, on a future <laughs> nice. episode. Anyway. No, actually, there are plenty of sunshines. It's not, <laughs> there's nothing particularly <laughs> special about that one. But uh, quick story. So I'd say it happens quite often. And yes. there's no there's no master log somewhere of, nope. hey, in naval aviation, you can only have two per that's right. you know, fiscal year or something. But anyway, for me, when I checked in as a dirty hinge, a department head into VFA 147, uh-huh. the JOs, as yep. the junior officers, as they should. They did their homework. So they called because I was coming from the East Coast. So they called back east to the training command there, 106, uh, FRS, excuse me. <laughs> and they said, hey, can you tell me about Sunshine? Well, there just happened to be two Sunshines there. Uh-oh. And one was an oxymoron. So he's kind of a uh, <laughs> not so friendly dude. He was your alter ego? He was my alter <laughs> ego. Yeah. So basically, uh, the wires got crossed. They thought they were getting the other guy. And I show up kind of, hey, guys, happy go lucky. Woo-hoo. Yeah. You know, here's this fresh 04 and blah, blah, blah. And they all looked at me like, it's a trap. Get out. It's a trap. You know, the J.O.s didn't believe that I was as uh, kind of bubbly oh, as funny. I am. So anyway, that's that. How about you, Jello? Have you, you said yeah. you're, you're the one and only? Well, for Jello, yes. I've met lots of not-sos, as we've said ah, on the show before. Yeah. Not so wise, Lies. not so strong, not yeah. so sharp. <laughs> and I can't think of any others right off the top of my head. But yeah, it's not uncommon, Jesse. Good question. So yes, your uncle will have to share his call sign, Jungle Jim. Thanks for the question, Matt. And moving on to another question from Jesse Leak. Jesse says, I've noticed pilots get some choices as to what patches they wear on their shoulders. I would love to know your personal favorite patches you wore or cherish and some of the more memorable ones you've encountered or seen. Oh, very good. Well, my favorite two shoulder patches were my Top Gun patch and my 3,000-hour Hornet patch, I would say. And both of those were because they were hard work to acquire. Now, there 
came a time recently where Big Navy mandated we wear an American flag, and of course I took pride in wearing that as well. But those were my two favorite. And to his second part of his question, Sunshine, my first F-18 squadron was Lot 10s, which is the ah, very first yes. Charlie yep. model they made, or Lot, I should say. And we were in a air wing, rather, with uh, a Lot 18 squadron, okay. VFA-82. Fancy. And then the Marines had, like, Lot 15. So <laughs> we made a patch that said at the top, Lot 10 with an X. So Lot yeah. X. And then had the top-down view of the F-18. And at the bottom was the Irish Gaelic term, and I won't be able to say it right, Pogmathon or Pogmahon, something Pog like that. what? P-O-G-M-O-T-H-O-I-N or something okay. like that. And it basically means kiss my... Oh, you know what. your ex. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Very good. And so it was our way to uh, rebel against the higher lot jets that, frankly, yeah. we coveted. But it was yep. like, hey, we're blue collar, Pug Mahone. Dude, that's so, awesome. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun one. I think I still have a copy of that somewhere. Same thing with VFA 81, the Sunliners, and I won't ask the question. Right. No one knows. But yeah, same thing. We flew the Lot 10. Everyone else had the newer, shinier, mm -hmm. faster jets, if you will. So we kind of reveled in the fact that our gear uh, was a little substandard at times, but we still got the mission done. Yeah. So yeah, same thing. We had a big old X. But otherwise, I went with the CNO mandate of um, flag on the left. Flag on the left, excuse me, and the Air Force <laughs> TPS patch on the right. All right, there you go. Well, little did I know, by the way, call it poetic justice, four years later, yeah. I went back as a training officer, and I was flying A's. A's? <laughs> Lot 8 A's. Oh, eights, yeah. Wow, wow, Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. So we, I was in VFA 97. We did the very last Navy deployment in A's. We didn't <laughs> even have AMRAM. So did you have to wind up those jets, or how'd you get those things to work? <laughs> Clear. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for listener questions this week. Thank you very much for the listener questions. Keep them coming, and we'll get back to those hopefully on the next episode. So, Sunshine, we should probably get into the interview. And you had a chance to listen. Any lead-ins before we get to it? I just really enjoyed listening to Chili. So he's a, a fellow Arrow guy from uh, USNA, there, USNA, uh -huh. and uh yeah, he kind of ticked all the boxes, right? He was a skipper of 195, and just a, a really great career, and yet still a humble guy. And he oh, just yeah. explains everything so well. I think everyone will really enjoy the interview. Airshow London is Canada's largest military air display, featuring fans and performers from around the world at a spectacular, family-friendly event. Held at the London International Airport in Ontario, Canada, September 13, 14, and 15. Airshow London features thrilling performances by Red Bull Air Race pilot Pete McLeod, the A-10 Thunderbolt 2 demonstration team, the CF-18 Hornet demonstration team, the Canadian Forces Snowbirds, and much, much more. Airshow London strives to bring excitement not only in the sky, but on the ground with dozens of amazing static display aircraft, such as the cutting-edge F-35 Lightning II and formidable B-52 Stratofortress. And don't miss the Kid Zone, an inflatable wonderland sure to thrill children of all ages. Admittance is free for children 12 and under, and discounted advance tickets are available for sale at airshowlondon.com. That's Airshow London in Ontario, Canada, September 13 to 15 of 2019. Make it your mission to be there. 
Okay, joining me in studio today is my very dear good friend, retired United States Navy Captain David Culpepper. Chili, how you doing, bud? I am doing great, Jello. Thanks so much for inviting me to be here today. Well, thanks for taking the time. You're only in town for, what, half a day? And... Yeah, well, not even that, 11 hours. Oh, gosh. All right. Well, you're on a layover with your gig, and we'll find out about that in a moment. And we're going to talk, what, close air support, forward air controlling stuff? Yeah. And I'll sneak in some good comments about the Tomcat in there, too, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. Everyone loves the Tomcat. All right. Well, you know about the show. We have to start with you. Where are you from? What have you done? What are you doing now? Uh, well, originally uh, from Texas. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force. He's got a complicated uh, uh, history. So Is that a whole show yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole okay. show to itself. But let's just say this. He, uh, he was in the Air Force when I was born uh, and decided he liked the Navy better, and eventually uh, he went off into the Navy. So I lived in actually China Lake uh, when I was a kid, oh. and my dad was flying uh, A4s and A7s uh, there in what was VX-5, now VX-9. Right, in Ridgecrest, so California. Yep. So I grew up around airplanes. I grew up around Navy airplanes. Uh, went to the Naval Academy, and out of there, got flight school. Got F-14s out of flight school. What was your major at the academy? I was an aeronautical engineer. Oh, you were? See, <laughs> why did I ask you? Because everybody thinks you need to be that to get flight school. That's exactly what I thought. I will say this. I loved it. But by the time you're a senior and the classes are really just all math, right. it's not really quite as exciting as you hoped it would be. <laughs> all right. Sorry I interrupted. but That's <laughs> no, all good. Okay. Uh, so I uh, went to the fleet flying F-14s. Uh, I was lucky enough out of there to go uh, be a Top Gun instructor after my first fleet tour. And, of course, you and I were there together. That's right. And that was... Probably one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life. I think I refer to it as getting my master's in flying. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. A lot of great life lessons uh, working at Top Gun and working oh, yeah. with some of the smartest people I've ever known, and mm -hmm. certainly some of the most dedicated. Out of there, uh, you know, went on with the, kind of the normal career milestones, which are probably boring to, to get into too much detail about. Did my department head tour in Japan, uh, flying F-14 squadron, transitioned to uh, F-18Fs uh, while I was there. So actually, mm -hmm. uh, moved the whole squadron to California and stayed there. And another F-18 squadron moved out to Japan to replace right. us, yeah. Mm -hmm. Eventually went to uh, command an F-18 squadron, which actually was also in Japan, VFA-195, Dan Busters. And then from there, uh, I did some time again as a trainer at uh, CSG-4 in uh, Norfolk. At the strike group. At the strike group, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I went to uh, Guantanamo Bay to be the, uh, the commanding officer, and that's where I retired from. That's right. You were in Cuba, and I've heard some great stories about that. So our paths crossed many times. We were at Fallon together, then we were in Japan together. That's right. That was a lot of fun. still speak fondly of those times, and so does my son, and I hope your daughter does. Do we still have an arranged marriage for those two? Or are they? As far as I know, it's still in effect. <laughs> you might ask great. them what they think. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's true. Well, they haven't seen each other since they were four and five, I'm sure. So. Yeah, that, that may be an important detail to say here is you were— two doors down for me uh, in Japan, and our kids were probably together as much as we were, That's right. if not more. Yeah, well, that was good times. I, like I said, remember it fondly. All right, so you were also a forward air controller airborne in what, both the Tomcat and the uh, Hornet, Super Hornet? I was. I, tra I did all my training in the F-14, and, uh, and the vast majority of my experience, in fact, was in the F-14, so okay. I'd call that my love, as it were, uh, <laughs> in terms of doing the mission. All right. Having said that, though, you know, uh, technology really progressed greatly. I'm, from my first days of doing CAS, I would say, uh, to you know my last days of being a FAC A uh, in the F-18, which was still some years ago, and, and it's gotten better since, mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting thread to pull on here in a bit. Okay. Tell me then quickly how many hours in the, well, total, and then in the F-14 and 18. Did I warn you I was going to ask you this? So uh, You didn't, so you're going to get round numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and how many traps? Uh, yeah, so round numbers. Uh, I okay. never got to 1,000 traps, uh, oh, okay. and I think the number was something like 960 or 70, somewhere, still a lot. somewhere in there. Right. Yeah. 
It's almost like my Tomcat time. So I think I had uh, 1,820 hours or oh, somewhere okay. around there in Tomcat. Not quite so, enough yeah, for a 2,000 so. patch. So that's, and it's the same in the uh, in the Hornet. You know, my combined Hornet time is just under two thousand, so <laughs> I fall just short of several of those great patches right. to put on my jacket. Okay, but you also flew the regular Hornet when we were at Top Gun together, right? I did. That was the first time I flew the Hornet. It was uh, well, I guess technically it would be the C because I was at the RAG, but, uh, right. but really, I mean, most of my time in the Hornet in the beginning was all in the F eighteen A there in Fallon, which I loved. No, that was fun. We used to fly pretty much. A through D there quite frequently, and I remember guys like you who came from the Tomcat community flying ours, and one day, I think I mentioned this on the show already, so I apologize to the listeners, but I went up to the training officer, I was like, hey, can I get a Tomcat call? <laughs> Why not? These Tomcat he's guys. Just, he's shaking his head, he's like, no, Jello, because <laughs> you guys had emergencies, like, almost every flight, and, you know. Come on it, now, wasn't that bad? <laughs> that was, okay, anyway, let's, yeah. Let's well, but it, it is fair, though, there was a, the Tomcat's a much harder airplane to maintain, and we did have a lot more maintenance problems uh, than the Hornet did. Yes, we had Sif and Cosmo in this very studio, actually, talking all about that. So I'm sure you listened with some aplomb and probably thought, yeah, they're full of it. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's talk yeah, today not. about the, I don't even know like where to start with this thing, but we're going to talk about forward air controlling. And to do that, I think we really need to start, what, with close air support? And that is part of our overall air-to-surface type role. So I don't know, where do you want to start, Chili? Well, I think... Uh... Maybe a good place to start is just to neck it down and make folks understand, you know, what niche of the world that mission fits into and why we do it. Okay. You threw out there dropping bombs. Okay, so uh, in the in the world of strike in the Navy and the Air Force and the Marine mm-hmm. Corps, you know, I'd say you could roughly say there are kind of three categories or certainly more if you get down to it. But let's just break it down into three broad categories, what we might call deep strike. Okay. And these are... Uh, you might call strategic type targets. You know these things that uh, you know we've had in the plan for ten years. That if mm-hmm. we go to war with whoever, right. you know this is what we're going to do. And we may have to fly long distances behind enemy lines to strike these. Right, things. and we'll have okay. a very detailed plan mm-hmm. uh, about how we're going to do it. Uh, we'll have a very detailed plan about what kind of ordnance we have to use to we'll have what kind of effect on this specific target in order to achieve the objective. Mm-hmm. And then back away from that, you've got a broad country. Uh, or space that you're in conflict with, you don't necessarily have a detailed plan about every little thing Mm -hmm. that does matter and that you want to go after. And you might send out folks to do some kind of armed reconnaissance mission or even, how do I want to put it, uh, reactive planning kind of things, right? So a quick turn, hey, we found something, we want you to go get it. And you've got some specific information about what you're going after, but not a lot. And those happen, again, far away from friendly forces on the front lines. And we send guys in there, and they do their own reconnaissance, and they find those targets, and they attack them. And then the third in the category that we want to get to is CAS, close air support. Okay. And the important part about close air support, I would say, is I'll throw out two things. One is it occurs uh, in close proximity to friendly forces. And the most important part about it is that that is the most important part, I think, is that uh, Mm -hmm. it is done in a manner not to have a negative effect on friendly forces. Right. So fratricide being the most important thing. Close coordination is a big, big part of this. So close coordination, that's what I was going to jump to, (laughs) not only to avoid fratricide, but to achieve the broader mission objective of the ground forces, not of me, the the guy in the air, but to achieve the objective of the guys on the ground. So not only necessarily to defend them, help defend them when they're under attack, but to attack places that help them to move forward and achieve their short and long-term objectives on the battlefield. So anyone who's involved with that is really an extension of the ground commander. Is that safe to say? That's exactly right. And that's where the coordination is starting, is starting with the ground commander. And we were telling a little story before we walked in here. You want me to jump into that one? Uh, It's kind of good. Uh Because what we're going to jump to here is why we do close coordination that we're discussing, CAS. Right. What is a FAC? 
and what is a FAC A, right? Mm-hmm. That's ultimately what I'm going to get to is what I was as a FAC A. And that's a forward air controller airborne. Airborne. Right. Okay. Well, it does remind me about training uh, because all Navy FAC A's are trained by the Marine Corps. All really? Navy FAC A training starts with FAC training. Hmm. And actually, the first thing I was was a qualified FAC. And I think that's important, too, because the story I was telling you in the car was, you know, what perspective a FAC A has. Mm-hmm. My first cruise, 1997, off the Kennedy, we did a short stint in Yugoslavia. Now, at the time, the UN was there, and it wasn't a war. It wasn't a, a highly kinetic conflict. Mm-hmm. It was more like a police action, but there was stuff going on on occasion. And we were sent to do, not cast per se, but it was more like this kind of armed reconnaissance kind right. of mission. But at one point, we were directed to check in uh, with a FAC. And so we checked in with this uh, controller. You could tell by his accent that he was probably British. Because other countries do the same tactic. Exactly. And that's an interesting piece to talk about later if you want to, mm-hmm. JTAC. Yeah. But we checked in with this FAC, and he kind of tells me what they're trying to do. He tells me that uh, uh, he gives me kind of the standard update. The targets is where he starts off. And he basically says to me, there's a tank at the end of this road hold up behind this building. And we say, okay, give us a talk on. So he starts his talk on. He says, well, do you see the red roof? And our answer to him basically was, I see six towns, and each one of those towns has a thousand red roofs. Which town are you in? <laughs> Talk about a lesson in perspective. Right? Lesson in perspective, exactly. <laughs> and I always remembered that. I obviously still remember it now, now that I'm old and gray. And I kept that with me when I was a fac, to kind of understand that, when you, especially when you bring somebody into a new area that they know very little about, mm-hmm. because the fact's job is to have a detailed understanding of what the ground scheme of maneuver is, a detailed understanding and and usually uh, instant and constant coordination with the ground commander, he knows what's going on. Right. And he's got to communicate that as best he can to either a CAS asset or to a FAC-A who can then relay that to a CAS asset. Mm-hmm. So I remembered that story all the time, and I tried to apply that you know, when I was a FAC-A. And it's easier to do from the air to have that same perspective that another guy in the air is going to have and draw him to those major landmarks that are going to help him neck it down into a broad space and then down to a very specific space. Okay. And so when we say FAC in general terms, we mean a forward air controller. And we're specifically thinking he's on the ground, unless we say FAC-A, correct? Now, can you give me a distinction between the new terminology, JTAC, which is what? Joint Terminal Air Controller? Yeah, they're actually more than that, and I'm, okay. I'm afraid I don't remember them all. But those are a good three that will still tell the story, mm-hmm. uh, which is that uh, FACs, and again, I'm Navy trained, Marine Corps trained, mm-hmm. uh, so I'll, I'll talk FAC from the, from the Marine Corps perspective. The FACT is part of the Forward Air Control Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Forward Air Control Party, this Marine Corps group of guys are always attached to a ground unit, and they move with a ground unit. And there'll be several FACs, several observers, several guys who are responsible for maintaining communications, and they work together to accomplish the job of the FAC in a broad perspective. FAC-A, like you said, mm-hmm. and like I just described a minute ago, Navy FAC-As at least are initially trained as FACs, so they share that commonality uh, and an understanding of uh, the command and control, mm-hmm. the comms, the procedures uh, that are used, not only to get bombs on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's really the, the final stage mm-hmm. of that, but to take all these assets that are somewhere, all these airplanes that are somewhere with ordnance who may or may not have been assigned a mission to go do CAS, pulling them into a unit that needs them, that needs them now, right. putting them where, where they need to be, deconflicting them, mm-hmm. getting the right order ordinance to the right FAC so that he can ultimately get it onto the right target. Mm-hmm. So that command and control process, again, from a Navy Marine Corps perspective, uh, we train together to understand that uh, and to use it. 
So again, here in my in my story, though, I'm in a different place and I'm dealing with a different guy. So fact and fact in that perspective, and that may not be the best broad answer to that, but it certainly works from a Navy Marine Corps right. perspective. Now, JTAC, uh, when the J tells the first part of that story, it's joint. Right. Oh, I should have said this when I was talking about uh, Marine Corps facts. They're all aviators. Uh, of, so of let's some, take an aviator out of the cockpit for a period right. of time and make him the fact. Right. So okay. so he still understands the air side of it, right? Right. Marine Corps facts are all aviators. Fact A's obviously uh, are all aviators sure. or, or in a foes. JTACs aren't necessarily okay. uh, aviators. And so probably a SEAL ma- will go through a JTAC. Right, course. exactly. Yes. And probably the majority of them are not mm-hmm. aviators. The majority of them are some other kind of warfighter who have another reason to be on the battlefield, probably in a place where they don't expect to have another aviator available who's fact trained right. to provide their air coordination. Mm-hmm. And so they have JTACs. And like you just said, and that's probably the best example, certainly in a Navy perspective, mm-hmm. uh, is the SEAL. Yeah, because they have all these other specialties. And I remember, by the way, when I was in Fallon last in 13 through 15, that I don't know if they were doing this before, but they would put the SEALs in the back seat of F-18s to give them the perspective from the aviator's point of view, because otherwise it's all somewhat academic. I mean, they go out on the range and they control aircraft, but they've never seen it from the other side. And in doing so, their eyes were always wide open when they come back like, wow, that's really incredible. Because what we've been dancing around but haven't really homed in on yet in this discussion is this is an incredibly complex mission. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have to think, I was in a fact, I have to think this was the hardest mission airborne that you had. And certainly from my point of view, just doing close air support with you out there in your F-14, let's say, as a fact, a was challenging because there's frequencies, there's moving lines of the forward edge of the battle area, there's things going on on the ground, there's things, I mean, it's really involved. And, you know, we're going to get to this in a second, but I can see why the Navy and the Marine Corps believes in two-seat crews to do it because I don't know how you did it. (laughs) Yeah, I would put the cast in a single-seat airplane. You know, doing cast in a Hornet by yourself was one of the hardest things uh, I think I did, FAC-A and uh, and CSAR. Being a CSAR coordinator. Oh, that's true. Uh, and Which we actually not that different, actually. Yeah, it's not. In fact, we assigned FAC a qualified crews to be CSAR coordinators mm-hmm. because it's a very rescue. similar yep. requirements to do all those things you were just describing. Yeah, that's a good segue if you want to talk for a second about the crew coordination. Yeah, that's. So, like you said, it's a very complex mission, and uh, so since we assign, I think almost exclusively two-man crews to this mission, certainly in the Navy. Tomcats uh, and two-seat Hornets do all of our FAC A and the mm-hmm. Marine Corps F eighteen Ds. Right. Uh, do FAC A, uh, but there are some other single seat, either helicopters uh, or aircraft mm-hmm. that do uh, FAC A uh, type missions as well. Well, in the Air Force, you have F 16s and A 10s. Exactly. But to be fair, if I may, I think those guys will also give up some missions, right? In other words, well, certainly an A 10 isn't worried about air to air, but an F 16 guy who's a FAC A, I'm guessing, I don't know, we have to call T Day back, but I wonder if they give up some of the seed. Or air yeah. to air or something. Well, I think they do, um, <laughs> but to degrees. Right. Uh, I don't have first-hand experience of this. I've read a little bit about it, and I think the A-10 crews train to it mm-hmm. pretty rigorously. And I'm not picking on an F-16 crew to say they train at it less so, but I think they have less time for it. Right. They certainly do still train very hard for the mission, of course. Mm-hmm. But A-10 guys, I think, they tend to be very dedicated to it. So, yeah, I certainly couldn't throw spears at those guys. I mean, as a single-seat guy doing that mission, it's really tough. But then, to be fair, in your multi-seat crew, now there are certain things you're not doing that your Rio or Wizzo is doing, so there takes some element of coordination between the two of you. Or is that decided ahead of time? 
Well, it is decided ahead of time. We typically would break up these things in a fairly standard way because obviously I have to fly the airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd assign him some of the more complex communication tasks, especially if he's got to go, you know, swapping frequencies back and forth. Right. So he would typically do a lot of the nine lines. You know, he would coordinate uh, with the ground fac or with the ground force commander for the uh, the targets. He would work up the nine lines, pass those nine lines on to the, uh, the target aircraft. I would control the stack. So as, as aircraft came in and checked in with us, it became our responsibility. Uh, I would assign them uh, a place to hold and an altitude to hold. I would get from them, you know, their ordinance, uh, how much time they had on station. Mm-hmm. And I'd rack and stack all those things. I'd pass that information back to my, my, my Rio for him to determine who he wanted to use for what target set based on what ordinance they had, for example, sure. or how much play time they had. Mm-hmm. I take the grease pencil on the canopy. Oh, you guys did that too? Oh, yeah, right on the canopy uh, <laughs> and then put call signs on there and the altitudes and the places I told all these guys to hold and make notes about their ordinance, uh, et cetera. <laughs> oh, yeah. It worked pretty well too. Yeah, well, Supa talked about that on the A10 episode. So, oh, yeah. uh, it, you know, same, something same. simple works well. Uh, yeah. And then the pilot would provide terminal control, and I say that and I pause because uh, the pilot would typically provide terminal control for a uh, Type 1 cast. He might provide it for Type 2 or Type 3 cast, but the Rio might also provide it for Type 2 uh, or Type 3 cast. Do we want to pause for a second and talk about the different types of casts? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Type 1 cast, in really broad terms, Type 1 cast is where the uh, the FAC or the FAC A mm-hmm. is taking full responsibility for the bomb and where it goes. Okay. Right. In order to do that and do that effectively, he has to be able to see the target and see the attacking aircraft and confirm that where the target the attacking aircraft is coming from and pointing to will not have uh, any negative effects on the battlefield wow. whether it be fratricide or uh, you know unintended targets mm-hmm. uh, hit that requires you know some pretty aggressive maneuvering in an aircraft in order to do that keep the uh, uh, the, the ground target in sight mm-hmm. and maneuver yourself in a position we would call assess the nose position okay. uh, of the attacking aircraft so if you can see his nose and you can see where it's pointing, you can effectively say, yeah, the bomb's going in that general direction. Sure. You know, Basic uh, physics. Uh, yeah. 100 feet long, 100 <laughs> feet short. I can't tell that. Right. But I can tell that he's pointed in the right direction. Okay. And I can tell that, you know, once he gets past this spot, you know, for example, if he's attacking perpendicular to the front line, I can tell that once he gets past this spot, the friendlies on the ground are safe. Right. That bomb just can't literally come back and yeah. do can't, something funny. Can't so. turn okay. around. And then type 2 and 3 cast kind of at least from my perspective, developed, you know, more recently. In my career, Type 2 and 3 casts were starting to become procedural when I was a pretty young fac. Uh, and that's just the evolution of, of weapons. Mm-hmm. Well, not just weapons, but weapon systems. When I was telling you that story about being in Yugoslavia and not being able to find the fac, you know, what city the fac was in, well, because mm-hmm. I didn't have a FLIR on my airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a not-so-great INS in the old uh, Venerable Tomcat. And it was hard. I knew I was close to him. Right. But I didn't have a, a weapon system that I could point at him like a flare right. and say, oh, yeah, he's right there. I'm typing a left well, line. Or at night, right? If you were or on night, night vision goggles, he could do like an IR roping like, hey, this is where I am. And you might be able to see that. Yeah, like. exactly. And it was daytime. So okay. that wasn't available. Right. So type two and type three casts are both kind of variations of I don't necessarily need to see you. And where you are, I don't necessarily need to see the target or see you mm-hmm. um, because I can provide you detailed enough information about the target uh, that I will clear you to engage the target rather than clear you hot. And in that case, the responsibility for the weapon is, is yours. Okay. Say, so, I'm going to give you the best information I can about the target, provide you what you need. I might even still provide you a talk on, probably will mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of circumstances, certainly for type 2 casts, provide you a talk on 
ask you what you see, whether it's with your eyeballs or your NVGs or with your FLIR, right, mm -hmm. and verify that you see what I expect you to see. Mm -hmm. That's one of those things that you try to avoid, uh, what would you call it, uh, a leading question, I guess. Try to avoid those leading questions uh, where you right. ask a question such a way you're going to get the answer That's you want. Right. You yes. Try to avoid that so that mm -hmm. you ask him these questions that are vague enough that if he'll just say what he's thinking or what he sees, and it'll be of, obvious to you. Instead that of it's answering right. what yeah. you want him to say, because you don't want him just to say what you want him to say. So you type wanna... two and three are less restrictive, more lax. Is that safe to say? Well, than type one. I mean, type one seems like the most restrictive. I need to see you, and I need to know where the target is, and I'm going to clear you hot. We haven't gotten to that yet, but only when I'm assured, this is me, the fact, talking, mm -hmm. that everything is safe. Right. Type two is a little more like, well, I know where the target is, and if you're where you say you are, I mean, is that essentially what it is? Then I can clear you? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Okay. And then type three, like, if we're in California, and there are, I mean, this is an awful example, but maybe it'll work. If we're in California, and we've got a guy, and we say, hey, you're cleared type three cast in Arizona. From this time to this time, you could go over there and bomb anything you want, theoretically, in this example, and then just tell us when you're done. We know that any target in Arizona is enemy. I mean, is that kind of a very broad, terrible example? Of no, that's, that's pretty good. That, that, <laughs> okay. that sums it up pretty well, actually. Right. Yeah, in fact, I always find it hard to make a, a good uh, distinction between two and three. That's, pretty good. that's a pretty okay. good summary there. And, uh, you know, in the fact, the fact might go back and forth between using type one, type two or type three uh, cast, depending on, you know, the specific weapon being used uh, or the specific target uh, that he's got him going after and, you know, how that target relates to the uh, friendly forces. Mm -hmm. You know, because in a broad battlefield, there might be lots of places where folks can go and there's very little risk of fratricide, even very little risk of unintended consequences. But then... You know, as he's controlling various airplanes, he might go right back to Type 1 gas. Well, or the situation on the ground could change. Right? Change rapidly. Yeah. Exactly right. So as you talk, I keep thinking of one of my favorite all-time movies, We Were Soldiers. It's the real story of one of the first times, right, or the first time Vietnamese and, and American soldiers met each other in battle. And there's the broken arrow scene. Mm -hmm. And it's my favorite because it calls up all <laughs> the aircraft and you get little snippets. But then this is aircraft rolling in. It's troops in close proximity. They're laying the fire down. He's clearing them. And that's what? Is that type one, I presume? I mean, obviously, there's some luxuries taken by Hollywood, but I, yeah. how much of that is realistic? Well, I couldn't answer the question about type one cast, but I could say that, uh, you know, and you can imagine back in that time frame mm -hmm. what type of technology they're working with. They're working with area weapons right. and area sensors. Napalm, for example. Yeah, Napalm, yeah good example. <laughs> yeah. Or just Mark 80 series GP. Mm -hmm. uh, general purpose yep. bombs. Or bullets or rockets. And bullets and rockets. Mm -hmm. You know, things that you don't aim at specific places, but that you drop in, in areas. Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't drop one at a time. You don't shoot one rocket. You don't drop one bomb. You know, you drop lots. Yeah. But the other thing, too, is a broken arrow. You know, that's, I'm not even sure that's a contemporary term. And if I remember what that means, it basically means hey, give me all the aircraft you got. Yeah, we're being overrun right. is the way they play it in the movies. Where I think that does relate to current times is what we call push gas. Okay. A ground commander is in trouble, and he calls out that he's in trouble, and they start grabbing airplanes who were assigned to other missions, but have ordnance and are close enough. They have ordnance and gas. They grab them from another mission. They say, go over here. Because we have friendly people on the ground who are in extremists. Yeah, that's right. So whatever you were doing, it's less important now than going over here uh, right. and dealing with this problem. And that's a great example from Vietnam of a very similar kind of thing. Okay. These guys are in trouble, and we need to grab everything that we can and send them to those guys. And in that case, it's probably likely, and I think they took some liberties here with the movie, like, look, here's where we are. They're coming. Get in here. Go east to west, south to north, whatever. You know, we'll pop smoke. We'll do different things. But earlier, you said the phrase nine line. Mm -hmm. Give us a quick 
if you would, example, not example, yeah, but, please well, don't maybe do that. Second, but <laughs> give us a quick uh, explanation is the word I wanted of what a nine line is. In basic terms, a nine line is a standardized format mm-hmm. to pass all the information a pilot needs to get from where he is, the mm-hmm. holding point that I assigned when he checked in with me, right. to the target, acquire the target, and deliver a weapon and egress safely. So if you're the FAC A and I check in with you in my F-18, I might have on my kneeboard a blank card with nine lines mm-hmm. and different little lead-ins like heading or distance or type of mark. As you read those to me, I'm going to fill that in, and then that helps, what, build my awareness of the battlefield and tell me how to attack this target, essentially? Yeah, and that might be actually a, the last step in a two- or three-step process. Okay. Right? So when you first check in with me, you know, like I said before, you're going to tell me mm-hmm. uh, who you are, how many airplanes you are, what you're carrying, and how much time you got right. at a minimum. Uh, and then I'm going to come back to you, and I'm going to give you some information. I'm basically going to tell you what's going on. And I need to tell you what targets I think I'm going to have you go after. I might do that in very general terms, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a lot going on. Uh, I just want you to start thinking about, you know, what weapons you have and how you might use them. I might give you very specific things if I already kind of know what I'm going to use you for. I'm going to tell you what threats are in the area. Okay. You know, whether, for example, I'm only worried about man pads. There's, uh, there's AAA. I know specifically where some AAA is. I know specifically where some uh, surface-to-air missiles are. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to tell you what the friendlies are doing. Here's where I need you to worry about. I'm probably not, again, going to give you the entire picture that I have developed in my head. But I'm going to try to give you things that I think are going to be important to the mission uh, I'm going to assign to you. Or I might just give you updates based on if you and I had briefed together earlier, and I know that you've got some part of the picture, I might just give you what updates that picture for you. Mm. All right. And then I'll provide you any other information I think you're going to need in order to, like I said, get to the target, effectively deliver bombs and egress safely. Okay. And then if we've got time or it's necessary, I might start a talk on. I might do a talk on from a map. The surface-to-air threat, for example, might be significant enough that you can't get close enough Mm -hmm. for a long time and look at it until you find what you want, right? So you may be holding some distance away, and I'll get the map out, and I'll start talking to you on the map. I'll explain to you uh, where that target set is. I may try to draw your eyes out to things I think you can see. So I can get your eyeballs in the right place, and then you can start comparing that to the map. I might use your FLIR. If you've got a good FLIR to point in the target area and do the mm-hmm. same thing, the mm-hmm. same thing I talked about before, what do you see? All right, good. That's close. Go right. over here. That's your target. And then the nine line would be the last part of that uh, where I say, okay, uh, I want you to go from where you are, like you said, this mm-hmm. heading, this distance, to this target at this position. This day and age, I'm most likely going to give you that in latitude and longitude or sometimes grid, but something that you can just type into your computer, and Mm -hmm. your computer's going to go, it's right there. Right. Tell you what you're attacking. I'm going to restate those friendly things that I need you to worry about, and then tell you how to get out. And then I might add other things that I'm going to do to coordinate, right? So again, if it's a big surface-to-air problem out there, I might tell you how I'm going to suppress the threats while you're ingressing and egressing from the target, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it be with an electronic attack or uh, air-to-surface missiles that counter those threats. Or maybe artillery or whatever the coordination is going on. I'll tell you. suppress them for a moment while you come in. Okay. I'm going to tell you how I'm going to suppress that. Mm -hmm. And then especially if I'm doing that, I'm going to give you a time on target because I can't suppress things forever. Okay. (laughs) I can only suppress stuff for a period of time, right? (laughs) So you got to get there while while all that stuff is working and Mm -hmm. then get out. Right. And that's the purpose of the nine line is an agreed upon format so that I don't have to say all that stuff. How long did it tell me to explain that? Mm -hmm. It took me a couple minutes to explain that, but I need to get it out on the radio in 20 or 30 seconds. Right. And I need you to read back, you know, key portions to me, and that can't take a long time. Is it up to you or me or who decides what tactic to use, or is it based on the scenario? So, for example, 
sometimes we used to do this in training, coming in at low altitude, which, of course, is a ton of fun because then you're <laughs> nap of the earth, you pop up, ton you look fun. for the smoke or whatever mark there is at the last second, you attack it, and you get out again. I like the analogy. It's like a mouse that sees a piece of cheese, you know, it kind of hangs out by the hole, runs out, grabs it, and runs back. So you got to hurry up and get back to safety. But is it up to you or me whether I do that or hang out up at high altitude and just roll in from 20,000 feet? Well, we trained all those things. My temptation is to say that we trained all those, mm-hmm. like you just described, you know, low-altitude ingress pop with a, a timed, coordinated uh, uh, mark. You know, again, you probably got that map talk on in that scenario, and right. you kind of got a general idea in your head what you're going to see, but you don't know exactly where the target is. Smoke comes down. He's going to say to you, from that smoke, here's your target. <laughs> you know, you shake your head as you come out of your pop. You go, okay, it's right there. Right. You know, your fingers are moving as fast as you can to get the weapon system on the right spot, and the bomb's coming off, and then you're out of there. That's right. And it is potentially the most thrilling thing you ever do. <laughs> oh, it is definitely the most challenging mission I ever did. In fact, when I was in training at VMFAT 101 in flight school, El Toro, before it closed, like my entire class was getting downs. Like they came in and yelled at all of us, like, you guys suck, you know, you got to get better at this. And I didn't, by the grace of God, I don't know how I snuck through it, but they ended up putting like instructors in our back seats, like, what is wrong with you guys? Why can't you get this? But it is difficult. It's a hard because mission. Because even just as you were describing that a moment ago, Chili. I remember, like, in the middle of a pop, I would say, you know, what is it, contact the smoke? Because mm-hmm. you reserve the word tally. So, folks, every word has meaning. So you have to make sure you use the right meaning. Well, it, so, it goes back to the nine line, right? Every word right. has meaning, right? We want to say yeah. specific, specific just like things as succinctly mm-hmm, as possible. That you know yeah. what it means. But I can remember being in the pop, contact the smoke, I'm on my ball. I'm on the game. What am I trying to say? You're on the ball? I'm on the ball. <laughs> I'm on my game. <laughs> I'm on my game. I've got my hand it. on the master arm because you don't want to forget that. After everything else you've done, if you forget to arm up, that just sucks because then the bombs don't come off. <laughs> and then the guy says, from the smoke, north 100. And I think to myself, which way is north? <laughs> because I just ran in at low altitude. I was holding perpendicular to the target, and I did a turn. and Turned 30 degrees and 30 yeah, degrees. Yeah, and the sun's no help because it's usually straight up and down. <laughs> and I just remember, all right, I see something that direction looks like about 100. I'm going to bomb that. And that's probably not the right thing to confess because, of course, again, this is in close proximity to friendly troops. But it is hard, especially the low altitude stuff. And to that point, sometimes... This can be the exact opposite, right? I mean, in the right environment, couldn't we just hold in an orbit overhead and you could talk my eyes directly onto that red roof? And when I say I see it, you could say roll in and attack it, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's exactly where I was going with that. Okay. In training, we, we do all of these things. But typically what I have done in theater is exactly what you just said, which is not nearly as exciting, <laughs> but it's far safer and far more effective. But it does require that you're able to do what you just described, that you're able to sit up there right. and loiter until you find what you want. Well, it's always easier to swing the weighted bat, right? I mean, in other words, if I know I can do the very difficult technical ingress and egress that we just talked about, well, then I can hold overhead and be talked on and then attack the thing. But it also depends on the threat. Exactly. To be fair, for the last, gosh, years of my whole career, There really wasn't much of an air-to-air threat, which Mm -hmm. is part of this we haven't even touched on yet, or really much of a surface-to-air. I mean, some, but usually everything we've been doing Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan and in Iraq for the last 25 years has been fairly permissive, I would argue. And what threats there have been, you know, we found ways to isolate, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that we can still effectively do our mission and isolate those threats in places that they aren't effective. (laughs) 
It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. So, gosh, I mean, we're hitting all over this, but it, this is good stuff. You started talking about the things you do in the airplane. Let's get back to that because you've got to coordinate all that. And let's say now you and I are out there and you are going to type one control me. You need to know where I am. If you're in an aircraft, how do you manage that? How do you know where I am when the time comes to assess my nose and my position that I've done everything correctly? Uh, well, usually that's just a map once again, right? Mm-hmm. I've got a map, and I know where I am, or at least I generally know where I am. I'm moving around the battlefield too, right? right? So, I mean, I mean, I'm jokingly, I'm as the fat gay, I'm, I'm typically not holding someplace, right? But I put all my cast players somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, and they are holding in specific places, and I know where those places are, you know. But I'm moving around the battlefield. I'm, you know, on the other radio that you don't hear, I'm talking to the fac. Uh, or maybe my Rio is talking to the fact, and he and I are talking on ICS as we coordinate mm-hmm. the two different jobs that, that we're doing until we're ready to call you in. And, and then I will move basically in your direction. That's the easiest way to do it usually is okay. when I know you're pushing, because I know what your time on target is. I signed you that in my nine line. Right. So I know when you're supposed to be on target, you know, and it's just basic math to figure out where you're going to be 30 seconds a minute prior to that. You know, so at 30 seconds a minute prior to that, I'm going to expect to pick you up in a specific place. Okay. And that's part of where this type one comes in, right? If I don't pick you up in that place, odds are you're not going where you're supposed to go. Uh-huh. You know, so if you get to the point now where I don't see you and then you suddenly say popping or... Wings level. Or, yeah, wings yeah. level, you know, which is a way of uh, a striker pimping the fact. I need, right. you, I need you to talk to me now. And I don't see you and you're not where you're supposed to be. Okay, then we're probably going the wrong way and I'll call you off on that okay. point and we'll start again. All right. But it's an incredibly dynamic thing, mm-hmm. and it can be very challenging. I mean, I said that a moment ago, like, you know, if I don't see you, you're not where you belong. That's actually not necessarily true. <laughs> Maybe you're not where you're – but you guys are usually experienced, the fat games. Uh, well, I usually have a pretty good essay on the, of how the battlefield is laid out because right. I've been there a while, right? This isn't a mission for new pilots, in other words. Oh, it's really not. Saying. No, yeah. it's really not. <laughs> okay. uh, but I usually have you know reasonably high essay as mm-hmm. to what the battlefield is because I've been there, and I've conducted the coordination with the fact, and I've usually done some detailed planning about what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Certainly in training scenarios where we know we are training to a specific ground scheme of maneuver, the Marine Corps example that I gave at the very beginning, right. I have pretty high SA. Now, that's not always the case in combat, you know, where you're, you're looking at a dynamic uh, response to a ground commander who didn't have planned casts, mm-hmm. but now demands it. Yeah. And now you're rolling in there and you're trying to develop SA really quickly. Uh, and we do have methods for dealing with that, uh, what we call spider casts, which is basically, you know, where you come up with a reference point. Everybody mm-hmm. has the same reference point, and then everybody is assigned holding positions off of that reference point. Like a compass. So yeah. you might be to the west, 270, or to the east, 090, something like that? Exactly. Okay. Uh, so, again, from that reference point, and, and the reference point may or may not be the the objective, depending on how coy you think you need to be in that environment, because most of this conversation is going on on, 
on an open radio frequency. So if you feel like you need to be coy, you can move it. <laughs> you can have code words? <laughs> yeah, or just not put the the centroid you know, right on top of uh, the ejector. Okay, gotcha. All right. And then so let's say you do pick me up. Are you going to just fly off my wing to see where I'm pointing, or are you going to do some kind of maneuver behind me? I mean, what happens yeah. in the visual arena here? Well, again, sometimes that depends. So uh, if I don't have to do anything else, mm-hmm. that's probably what I'm going to do. I'm going to get kind of in a, an attack wing kind of position. I'm going to be pretty close to you. Okay. And typically you're not alone, right? You have a wingman as well, and your wingman is... Uh, is assigned to be somewhere behind you Maybe in, in time. Right, yeah. He might initially be on your wing, but at some point he's going to be behind you in time. And I've got to set myself up so that I can assess both. assess both of you, right, right? right? And the situation allows me to do it the easiest way. I'll do exactly what you said. I'll basically get on your wing. I'll stay with you until I've assessed your nose position. And when I say wing, I'm not like in parade or anything like that. Right. I'm close to you. Right. Uh, and then as soon as I've given you the clear, I will then maneuver to pick up your wingman. And that'll usually require me. I can't join up on him. There's just not time to do that. So what I'll try to do in that case is as he's rolling in, I want to be right behind him so that I can kind of look through him as he's rolling in. You know, across the T, if you will, old, old sailing term. So right? if he's flying straight north on attacking the target, you might be flying east or west. Exactly. Perpendicular, but perpendicular. you're looking at that moment in time exactly. right down his nose. Exactly, which is a, a challenging piece of time. You <laughs> I know? bet. You know, as you kind of know where he is, you know where the target is, and you want to be right behind him right uh-huh. when that time comes for him to say, wings level, and you go clear hot. Yeah, and that's some of those terms we have, right? So only the fact A owns the words cleared and hot. Right. Right? What if I'm not cleared hot? What am I then? You'll get usually a, uh, an abort, uh, or you might okay. get a continue if there's still time mm-hmm. to figure out what's going to happen here. Uh, so you might say, for example, I'm popping, and I'll just say continue. Right. Typically, when you say popping, what you want to hear is, you know, from the smoke, there's your mark. Right. What might be going on there is, uh, as I'm the one delivering your mark, all right, so I'm in the dive uh, delivering your mark as you're popping. That's one of the most challenging places to assess nose position because now basically I'm going to pass you 180 out. I'm going to come off the target after dropping your mark. I'm going to make a hard turn, and now my Rio's looking over our shoulder. I'm looking for you. Mm-hmm. My Rio's looking at the mark. My Rio's going to call the mark on the radio from the mark. Uh-huh. Bomb this position. Uh-huh. And now I'm trying to acquire you so that I can go perpendicular and then kind of cross behind you or just go right. perpendicular and kind of, again, Yeah, we're going to have almost a merge. Oh, sorry, I, yeah. Gonna, yeah. I said perpendicular. I didn't mean that. 180 out. I'm going to yeah. meet you 180 out as mm-hmm. I come off the target and you're coming into the target. I'm going to meet you 180 out and then I'll be able to look <laughs> over my shoulder, assess your nose uh, position, right. and provide you the clearance. What and then you, still got to find your wingman. Yeah, exactly. What will you use to mark the target? In short, whatever you have. Yeah, right. In training, we typically use Mark 76. Uh, yeah, the little blue bombs with yeah. the smoke charges. Mm-hmm. It's debatable in real life if a Tomcat fat crew would mark a target. Because what I usually have to mark a target with is a bomb. Why would I mark a target with a bomb? Just blow up the target. Just attack the target. (laughs) So in training, the reason we do that in training is we're simulating artillery. Okay. Uh, so artillery on the battlefield will have smoke, and they can mark a target with smoke. Okay. You know, when you mark a target, it doesn't have to hit it. Right. You know, it's just got to be close enough reference. to it. It's a reference. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be close enough to it that the reference is useful. Right. But then the benefit of being dash two in this scenario is that when I roll in as the lead and miss, now you, having done your maneuver to acquire... Dash two can tell him, hey, from leads hits. From leads hits. <laughs> well, that's just a great comment, too. We joke sometimes in briefs, you know, that it's not dash one's bombs that matter. It's always dash twos. For exactly that reason. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to hit it the first time. But then even in training, 
a lot of times I'm dropping Mark 76s. Mm-hmm. And so first you got your Mark 76 and then mine. And then the, by then, of course, there's wind on the ground. And right, so right. Dash 2 is doing his best. Yeah. Because, of course, artillery, when you drop a smoke on artillery, it's persistent. Whereas a Mark 76 is a puff of smoke. I don't know that I knew that. Why is that? Is that like the charge is sitting in there just festering or something? Well, no. It's a, it's, a, it's basically a smoke grenade. Oh. It's not just a puff of smoke. <laughs> it's, more, it's more smoke. Okay. Purpose of that is you know, obscure a battlefield. Ah, yeah, that's they'll drop, true. They'll drop so, you know, white phosphorus or whatever. Well, white phosphorus is different, okay. uh, I think. Yeah, they do use it for marking them. They might use it instead of smoke when they don't have smoke. Oh, okay, <laughs> fair enough. But Willie Pete would be like a Mark seventy six. You know, it'll go off. Yeah, and, and it's not persistent. So far, we've been talking about this similar to Vietnam, frankly, where it's general purpose, free falling, kind of basic and somewhat arguably unguided munitions. Can I, in a modern age, Chile, do cast with a laser-guided weapon or JDAM or other high-tech weapons? Absolutely. How does that change your job as the FAC-A? Well, we we touched on this a little bit before when we were talking about the Type 2 and and Type 3 cast. Mm -hmm. And JTACs as well, right? So a a JTAC might simply pass a a coordinate. That you can just put into your JDAM, right? Well, that you guys put into your JDAM or your your weapon system. Mm Mm-hmm. If it's a JDAM, then yeah, you just type it into your JDAM, you put the JDAM in the cone, and you let it rip. Uh, if it's an LGB, then uh, you put it into your system, cue your system to that let long. And if you don't see anything, drop on that let long, you drop where the system cues to. But if you see something, then you can sweeten up the, uh, right. the solution when you actually pick it up. But on that point, it's possible that the FAC may want to designate the target, right, with his own laser designator. Yeah, or he might say, well, you have laser-guided weapons, that's great, but here's your target, attack it yourself. Or even you could designate the target mm-hmm. in your Tomcat or Super Hornet. Yeah, and in fact, uh, early on when we were doing this mission, the Tomcat would designate the target quite a lot. And actually in theater, too. It's because the lantern was a lot better than the Nighthawk. The Nighthawk, yeah. The original <laughs> Nighthawk was not a very yeah, good flare. No. So the lantern would pick out all kinds of things that the Nighthawk guys just couldn't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they would bring their bombs. They would, they would use the Nighthawk to get in the ballpark. And, right. and then the, uh, the FAC or the FAC-8 would lace for them. In which case, we have to make sure that you know our bomb's code, mm-hmm. or we do that ahead of time, because we can't run out on the wing and change it. Now, I can change my FLIR to have the right code, and so can you, but right. we can't change the bomb. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, there's rockets, there's you're bullets. Me, you're reminding me stuff, by the way. Of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I have, I we haven't done this for a while, <laughs> exactly. have we? <laughs> I miss it. I'm feeling old. fun, yeah. I'm telling you. Was, I, getting back to that, by the way, I would say, people have asked me, in fact, before on the show, what did you enjoy doing the most? And, you know, BFM was fun. You and I probably did a lot together, although I can't think right off the top of my head of a particular mission, but BFM was fun. Perch BFM was fun because at least you had either an advantage or a disadvantage to start from. But I think, honestly, my favorite mission was probably high threat cast because it was on you to put all that nine line information that you said into my system and then interpret it correctly, push on time, time. at a tactical airspeed. You can't just push and like lollygag in there. You got to be tactical and then pop correctly, be where you're expected to be and then hit the target on time. On that time. was satisfying. You're right. We described it earlier, you know, and uh, I mean, it's almost happening as fast as we were spitting it out of our mouths. Oh, gosh, it's, yeah. it's, it's happening. Yeah. And it was really, it's an incredibly dynamic mission. You know, at the same time, you know, a good portion of that is, you know, 3Gs are better. Yeah. I can remember coming back from some of those flights just dripping wet. With sweat. Oh, man. It's a hell of a workout. <laughs> <laughs> but 
right. Well, speaking of that, let's get into how does somebody become a FAC A? So you already kind of touched on this. You're going to be a FAC first. So you're going to go do it at zero knots, one G on the ground, and you're going to see it from that perspective. But let's say a guy, and again, we've already established it's not something for a brand new guy, but somebody gets picked for this. Well, first off, who gets picked? And then what's the syllabus like generally? Well, you kind of hit it early on when you said this is not a mission for mm-hmm. a new guy. Uh, so it's not a new guy. Uh, so it's typically a, a cruise experienced aviator. It is an O3. Okay. Uh, lieutenant, lieutenant in our case in the Navy. Yeah, in the Navy. All right. But it's a guy who's got, you know, a year or more under his belt. He's got several hundred hours flying the F-14. He's comfortable with the airplane. Sure. And he's already had an opportunity to kind of, you know, demonstrate his abilities. So can I ask you real quick? Everybody who's at that point in time, are they all going to be FAC A's or just the guys who kind of demonstrate a yeah. little better performance and awareness? Yeah, well, exactly like you were talking about the eight, we were talking about the A 10 and the F 16 guys before. Mm-hmm. There is not enough time to train everybody to okay. do this mission. So, we, again, I, I actually don't remember the number. I want to say we had three crews, uh, you know, per just, which is six guys. Right. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. So, it's, uh, it's a limited. Almost like being an LSO, right? So yeah. you can ask to be this, I'm, I'm guessing, or someone just sure. says, hey, you seem to have the capability to do it. And then at some point you're selected, and then off you go as a seasoned, relatively, pilot. Right. And, well, crew. Exactly. So okay. then the uh, and then the syllabus would look like, uh, you know, uh, I described you go to uh, uh, the Marine Corps FAC mm-hmm. syllabus. That's what you go through. Okay. The FAC syllabus, I mean, the beginning of it's all classroom, uh, and it's really all about command and control. You know, a big piece of this a lot of people forget, which I, I still find fascinating, is the the whole ship-to-shore part of this, right? The Marine Corps is an amphibious organization, organization yeah. right? So yeah. a classic Marine Corps mission is going to start on a Navy ship. Right. And this Navy ship is going to take the Marines someplace that they need to be, and then is going to put them ashore. Mm-hmm. Presumably, wherever we're going, they don't want us to come ashore. Mm-hmm. This is not, uh, you know... We're not wading ashore We're not welcome. to a party. <laughs> That's right. Right? So uh, we got to kind of fight our way in. So we have to establish a beachhead, and we have to do all those things. So there's going to be some combat going on before the Marines even get ashore. There's a piece of command and control that goes on at that point that is all it's all Navy-oriented. Mm-hmm. And then as you phase the Marines ashore, the Marines take over the command and control. But initially in the phases, the Navy still owns the command and control, even as some Marines are initially ashore because the Marines haven't established it yet, right? right. Uh, so the Navy's running, uh, not running the cash per se, uh, but they are organizing all the airplanes and pushing them to places where they need to be so they can check in with FACs or FACAs and accomplish their mission. And then as the Marines phase ashore, then there's the Marine Corps command and control that takes over. So a big part of the class is understanding those two organizations and who does what and how they work. Right. And I will still tell you to this day that I wish they could come up with the same names for them. <laughs> the Navy stuff was all called one thing. The Marine Corps stuff was all called, a, called, well, called another. Well, I'm sure Army stuff is different. And, and it is. Our joint partners and coalition partners and everybody else. Okay. It makes it challenging. So you're going to obviously spend a bunch of time in academics. And you're yeah. going to learn about this command and control. Which, by the way, is, I mean, I, I hope everyone understands. But it's not just... What am I trying to say? I mean, it's who's in charge, it's how does it work, it's with the frequencies, it's how we communicate and, and get things done. I spent a minute describing this earlier on when mm-hmm. I said, you know, that the uh, putting the bomb on target is the last part, arguably the most important this. part, but it's yeah. the last part of that chain of CAS. And, you know, getting an, an aircraft from, you know, whatever airfield or ship that it started on through all the steps that it needs to get to efficiently and effectively mm-hmm. so that it gets to the target still with bombs, still with gas, yeah. and an opportunity to complete the mission. It's a really complex process. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, arguably the most complex I think we do, or maybe some of the air-to-air stuff these days, but anyway. And it gets even more challenging, as you alluded to a moment ago. You know, the Air Force does it a little bit differently. The Mm -hmm. Army does it a little bit differently. The Navy and the Marine Corps, even though they mostly do it alike, do it a little bit differently. (laughs) And as often as not, in reality, you know, Mm -hmm. we train sometimes just to the kind of the specific Navy-Marine Corps setup. But in reality, more often than not, it is a joint environment. Right. Which usually means that the Air Force is at the top of the uh, command and control pyramid, but that doesn't mean somewhere in the middle you're integrating with simply a service unit. You know, somewhere, you know, when you get pushed at some point to a controller, not necessarily a fac yet, but now you're just talking to the Army or you're mm-hmm. just talking to the Marine Corps. At that point, now you're right. integrated into a different type of uh, command and control. Okay. Anyway, uh, like we said, a lot of things have to happen in order to make it all work yeah. efficiently and fluidly. Yeah. And it's pretty convoluted. Okay. So, in fact, I think one of these schools is right here in San Diego, EWTG PAC. I can't remember what it stands yeah. for. And to your point, the Marines do it as they should. I mean, they are the boots on the ground and every Marine <laughs> yeah. rifleman, which gets back to the uh, aviation part. Yeah. The point simply being is these are the folks on the ground. With the exception of the SEALs, the Navy's not really doing that. And so the idea is that we're probably supporting them, but we can also support Army, coalition forces, etc. So in the training, you have to learn about some of the different methods. And then I assume you, at some point, have a, maybe even a simulator, but then you go out on a range somewhere and actually start controlling exactly. aircraft, right? Yeah, so uh, EWTG, uh, Expeditionary Warfare Training Group. Thank uh, you. So there's Lant and PAC. Okay. So there's one on Atlantic each coast. And Pacific. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is, in fact, where the uh, the fact school is, uh, is EWTG. You hit the nail on the head. So you, you start with the academics. You move to uh, simulators. Uh, right. And a big part of the simulator is getting a layout of uh, what the ground commander wants you to do mm-hmm. and then building line, nine lines. Okay. So you're basically getting used to building nine lines and building them quickly based on data getting thrown at you pretty fast. Right. In an environment where we're not worried about a That's real right. airplane wasting its fuel. Still zero exactly. knots, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. zero altitude, zero knots, yeah. as we would say. Uh, and then you go to the field. You know, for us, it was uh, down to uh, Cherry Point out on the ranges out there, and we had a variety of helicopters and uh, fixed wing that came to support. You know, there were, I can't remember how many guys, but 10 guys, all from different backgrounds. I think three of us were aviators, and okay. the rest were Marines of various types. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we just cycled through getting controls, uh, and the training requirement, you had a specific number of controls, sure. which I can't remember anymore what it was, but we had to get a certain number of controls before we were qualified. Uh, and you needed controls of helicopters and controls of fixed wing. So you were really just trying to work at processing information quickly, building nine lines quickly, right. and getting aircraft from holding onto the target mm-hmm. quickly and efficiently. Because, again, you, know, you sit them out there and holding, and they'll, they'll run out of gas oh, and leave, yeah. and then yeah. hey, now you don't have any gas. And the point being is that they don't want some facts that are only good at this or good at that. I mean, if you're a fact, you're a fact. So just because you're a Navy pilot and you're going to go back and most likely be a fact A and an F-14 – well, they don't want some asterisk on your qual that says, but he never controlled helicopters or something, right? I mean, everybody gets the same training Yeah. because you get the same qual. Uh, that is okay. the goal. It was hard sometimes for everybody to get all the, uh, the helo controls they needed, but that's yeah. the target. Okay. That makes sense because when you've been bequeathed with that title, you want to know that the person can do it. So how long is this training, by the way? A couple weeks or a couple yeah, months? Yeah, it was a couple weeks. I, you know, okay. It's been a while, so I, I can't remember, but it was that's a couple fine. weeks. It wasn't a couple months. Okay. So then you go back, and then do you jump straight back into your flying? I'm guessing you get some currency back. but Yes. Yeah, so uh, what you're jumping to is now. So how do you come, how do you go from a fact to a fact A? Right. And that was the actually the much longer and much harder syllabus uh, was exactly that. So similarly, the weapon schools on the east and the west coast mm-hmm. uh, provide the ground training uh, for the uh, up and coming fact A crews. And you sit down and you learn how to how to do all those things and who's going to do what. You know, pilot responsibilities, uh, RIO or WIZO responsibilities. 
then you go in the air and you start training to it. And the syllabus is built around, you know, crawl, walk, run mindset. We'll give you the relatively easy missions first mm-hmm. and then we'll build it up to the high threat cast. Right. You know, where it's very dynamic and I've got a mark and you're going to pop and i got to find you. And uh, all those things that I described earlier. Yeah. I was at the weapons school for a while, you probably recall, and I remember our crew of FAC-A trainers who, so now this is your creme de la creme, because these are the guys that are yeah. teaching the other guys, and I want to say it was like a 14-flight syllabus or something, yeah. and the crews, I mean, that was all they were doing. Like, you're going to not do any other collateral duties, you're not going to do much other flying, you're going to focus on this because it's complex and it's dangerous, too. I mean, if you don't yeah. get this right, people on the ground can die, you can die, you can run into someone when you're doing yeah. those nose-clearing maneuvers you talked about. I mean, this is serious business. And that was months. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting to think about, too. So, you know, it, I don't want to leave the impression that, uh, you know, the pilots are better trained than the facts because the facts were going to a different place, right? The, the facts were going to go join a uh, tactical air control party. Right. And they were with a ground unit. With a, yeah, with other qualified facts. Right. They're like a young pilot going to a squadron. Mm-hmm. They've got their wings, but they don't know anything yet. And when they get to their squadron, they're really going to get trained. Right. And those young facts are like that. Those young facts are going to go and join the uh, tactical air control party, and then they're going to be with guys who are really experienced, and they're going to really, going to really teach them. So their learning is just beginning. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, is that for the uh, the Navy fac A's, same thing applies. Your learning is just beginning. And now when you get to the weapons school and you start the fac A syllabus, that's when you're really uh, going to get down to it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, truly, it's the same for all across. As I said up front, you know, in our discussion, Fact's an important mission mm. because you you know the bottom line. What a fact is really doing is keeping people from getting killed. Yeah, keeping friendlies. From keeping the right dead. people. That's right. <laughs> Arguably, Keep, keeping the friendlies. From yeah, being, for from sure. Being. And so, every flight, as I recall, it's not just like you and I could go out in two different airplanes and knock out a fact a syllabus flight. We need a range. We need ordnance. We need cast players. Mm-hmm. And then I don't even remember how like whether like if you were a student in an F fourteen. Did the IPs, like, fly in a different jet next year? They did. They did, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, there's a lot of assets required, and this can take a long time. But at the end, this person is a go-to person. I mean, they have demonstrated the ability. They're probably doing quite well in other things because if they can do this, they're usually pretty proficient. And it's a huge asset, I would think, to the air wing. Oh, it is. No doubt. Yeah. Kind of like I said before, too, you know, FAC A crews are, uh, are often called upon to do other missions that aren't necessarily FAC A right. because they have a very specific training mm-hmm. about command and control uh, and the ability to have two guys in a cockpit dealing with a complex problem, you know, basically using four radios right. for all intents and purposes at the same time. Yeah. So, uh, which is where I came up with the uh, the CSAR scenario that I talked about at the beginning. Right. Yeah. So, Chili, at least in my mind's eye, I don't know about the listener, but as we've been talking for the last almost hour now already, I've been picturing everything with the sun shining. Put the sun down. And, you know, we've had on this show talks about carrier landings are fun when the sun is up. Different story when the sun's down. What does nighttime do to this whole discussion? It changes things a lot. Makes high threat cash really, really hard. Yeah, you know we just don't do that same stuff low level uh, that we do in the daytime. Which is interesting because the A six used to ingress at very low altitudes at yeah, night. Yeah, in bad weather or at night. Yeah, but now we really don't, right? Yeah, you know, there is some capability to do that, mm. but uh, you know, we don't train to it enough. And I think largely because we don't think that's something we really need to do. And it's really dangerous to train to. It's right. a big part of it, too. So, yeah, you said the A6 screws uh, did that, and some A6 screws didn't do it very well. Mm. I don't mean to joke about it, but I'm just saying it's dangerous. Yes. They proved that it was dangerous. 
some things become easier, some things become harder. It highlights one of the old, you know, warfare jokes, which is the tracers work both ways. And that actually is a great thing at night. So if somebody shoots at you at night, it's really easy to see where they're shooting from. Yeah. That's great. So in some ways, it makes the attack problem harder, or excuse me, easier. Okay. But uh, some of the defense problems are harder because you can't create the same sanctuary as you create in the daytime. Mm-hmm. But it can be a lot harder flying. Well, we have different marks, right? So smoke's not going to help you at night, but illumination might. Or yeah, exactly. Infrared, put, put flares on the ground. Flares. Uh, well, you, you, yeah, yeah, you alluded to this stuff earlier on, which you were talking about uh, uh, roping. Mm-hmm. Roping's a great one. Somebody on the ground, it's really easy to acquire a guy on the ground who uh, who ropes. And what rope means is a specific term. guy with a, a laser marker, which is visible to NVGs, mm-hmm. basically point in the sky. And, just uh, make a and basically just twirl lasso, it. Yeah, yeah a lasso. Okay. You know, twirl it in the sky. Lasso does mean something else, but yeah. uh, twirl it in the sky, and it basically <laughs> says, here I am. Right. right. But can't everybody see that? Anybody with the MVGs can see it. Yeah. So if somebody's not on MVGs, they can't see it. Right. So nighttime type one is problematic. Is that safe to say? Yeah, it's not impossible, but it's harder. Yeah. Definitely harder. We don't train to do the little stuff, so <laughs> let's just say it's harder. All right. Fair enough. Gosh, you know, I always say this on my interviews. We could certainly go on and on. You were a FAC A. I know you did lots of training. Did you ever have a chance to do this for real? I did. I told you the uh, the Yugoslavia story. Uh, yeah, but that was before. That was, well, it was, it was actually was cast, lesson, but it was right? interesting. Okay. But the reason that applies is that, uh, you know, kind of that, hey, come over here and uh, and look at where I am and, uh, and and see what I see. Really, you know, in the real world, even as a fact, it's mostly what I, what we're actually doing. And, uh, you know, you alluded to earlier when we were talking about, the, you know, and most of the environments that we've been in in our careers has been fairly permissive. Yeah. And not like there was zero threat, but, the, but there wasn't a significant threat. And so we could kind of take the easy road uh, and uh, fly over a target until we find what we want and then put a bomb on it. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of what I did both as a fact and as a cash uh, asset. Probably the only time that I actually got the, you know, down in the dirt, figuratively speaking, was in Iraq. And uh, I guess this would have been uh, 2003, if I remember right. Well, that was when everything was happening, right around March and April. Yeah. It was kind of one of those scenarios that we were alluding to before where uh, I was in a holding stack and I was just kind of sitting there waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. Uh, And then I got the call that there was a... uh, Ground force in contact, uh, troops in contact would, okay. would have been the quick phrase that you hear all the time. Troops right. in contact, and now you go, you go get pushed to help troops in contact. And these guys were on one side of a bridge, and they were getting fired upon at the other side of a bridge. And in that case, you know, we could kind of tell uh, what was going on, and we checked in as a uh, as a fac A, and uh, we ended up kind of finding uh, out in the field, and we got pretty low level to kind of get this out because there was mm-hmm. an orchard, and there were people in vehicles basically hiding in this it's orchard. Daytime. This was daytime. Okay. Yeah. And basically using that you know, that mask of the trees in there mm-hmm. to lob artillery onto mm-hmm. these guys who were uh, on the other side of this bridge. And so we didn't act as a, as a fact in that case, taking other assets and controlling them on a target. But we took another piece of fact training, which is uh, artillery coordination, mm. and applied that. Because now the, the friendlies uh, had artillery as well, but they just couldn't see what they were shooting at. Okay. Uh, they were shooting back, but they weren't coming anywhere close. And so we helped them to provide just fires. Hmm. And then it actually ended pretty quickly uh, after that. But the vast majority of probably what you did and probably hmm. what I did was kind of one, one you described before. Go to Arizona. Right. And anything you find in Arizona that looks like a bad guy, attack it. Right. Because we don't, we know rather that we don't have any friendlies 
in yeah. there. So anything you see that's, of course, then that opens a whole new discussion of it's got to be military target. You're not just attacking oh, yeah, yeah. schools and hospitals and all that. But, you know, if you see armor, if you see anything that's militarily viable, then you can attack it. Okay. Yeah, which arguably is a different mission set, armed reconnaissance. Yeah, true. But sort of in this wheelhouse, if I check in with you and you own the airspace and you're saturated, but you know there's Arizona over there, you might say, hey, call sign, you know, in this case, hey, Jello, go over there and just do your thing. I don't need you, but I know there's targets. <laughs> Beat it. Okay. One last thing I have, unless we continue uh, whatever comes to mind, but I don't remember if there was a movie example of this, but in real life, if we, no kidding, are going to drop super close to somebody on the ground, sometimes their initials are required. What's that all about? Yeah, you know, I've, I've heard that. I've heard it done. I don't ever recall seeing that in training, though. Is that relatively yeah. new, maybe? But I will say this, though, is uh, we basically got a manual that tells us sure. what the danger distances are for every weapon that we use. We don't want to drop weapons inside those distances from friendly troops. Mm -hmm. And if we need to do that, we do need the ground commander to, to basically demand it from us. And if he demands it from us, we'll do it. The idea being that, look, that is a threat, yes, but it might be a lesser threat than if you don't. Well, he knows the condition of his cover. You know, okay. and it's hard to kill the prone man, they say. Okay. Uh, you know, so he's not only laying down, but he's laying down behind something. All right. uh, or, so he, he could be in a pillbox, you know, kind of going back to D-Day type. Yeah, exactly. He, right. he knows the condition of his cover, uh, and he's still counting on you, obviously, to hit the target, not him. Right. If you actually hit him, that'd be bad. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, if you're going to operate inside those danger-close ranges, uh, the ground commander needs to, uh, to demand it from you. I would say at least in common practice with the, uh, the initials from the, the, uh, the ground commander. I've heard done many times. Mm. I just never recall seeing it in training. No? Well, maybe it's become <laughs> urban legend or something. I maybe so. Or maybe I just don't remember. Holy smokes, Chili. This brings back a lot of memories. This, uh, again, interesting mission from the cast point of view. I never did the FAC A, but I would argue, again, one of the most difficult things for you guys. Did, was there some amount of currency or anything? Like, once you had the qual, if you hadn't done it in a while, was there something... Yeah, once you had the qual, you were qualified, but yeah, there was definitely currency. So every time I basically left the cockpit for a while and came back uh, and was going to be a FACA crew again, mm -hmm. I had to go through kind of a, a re-up syllabus, sure. which was usually a couple of flights, Okay, and you know, not the uh, the whole bear again. But just to make sure you hadn't forgotten, or at least yeah. they can also tell you what's new. Yeah, they tell you what's okay. new. In one, in, as a instructor, you know this, you know, in one flight or two, you can tell pretty quickly you right. know, somebody's depth of knowledge. You yeah. know? So you come back for a couple of recurrency flights, and the guy's going to have an idea whether you, uh, you need more. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That was usually me, by the way. <laughs> well, all right. I guess we got to end somewhere, and here's as good a place as any because we could just go on and on. And I know we barely scratched the surface on this. That's true. You know, we didn't talk about the history cast or where it came, how it developed, which is a neat story too. The initial kind of pokes at it in World War II. Yeah. Well, I guess World War One. I. I think yeah. Even once they had airplanes, they were trying to. I read something on Wikipedia about. Pigeons and big tarps <laughs> on the ground, and uh, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, well, uh, you know, drawing arrows on the ground yeah. with, uh, with mats and, uh, and dropping notes, essentially. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was basically reconnaissance, radios. right? That's crazy. Yeah, I think radios did start getting used in World War One, but uh -huh. but it was rare. <laughs> you know, World War Two, and the big problem in World War Two, I think, was not that people didn't understand the requirement for it, but that the the bigger animal of providing the command and control for it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, you know, there wasn't the uh, the demand. Or, that's, that's the wrong way to put it. Uh, there was the demand for it, but uh, the leadership prioritized different missions. Right. It wasn't quite procedurally often. put into place and everybody knew what to do. Yeah. Even in Korea, as I read, it wasn't really standardized. 
I think in the, during the Korean conflict is probably the most significant evolution uh, of CAS, probably other than recently as it yeah. relates to technology. Yeah. Largely because the uh, the threat evolved dramatically mm-hmm. while we were doing CAS uh, in Korea. I mean, we started off doing CAS with a. Uh, I think O1s in Korea, you know, low, slow flyers, essentially oh. loitering over targets, yeah. shooting uh, smoke flares at them. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, until... even in Vietnam, they were using what's effectively Piper Cubs with rockets on the wings and Cessna, almost like 172 type aircraft. Yeah, exactly. I mean, crazy. These guys were hanging it out there. Yeah, and then it evolved quickly into bigger and faster airplanes because the threat demanded it. Right. Yeah, because yeah, these guys were getting popped because they're right. just loitering over the battlefield. That's where they started doing uh, cast and jets. Yeah. Single-seat jets, I think, initially, too. Well, I'm oh, sorry, FAC, I meant. Yeah, yeah, uh, FAC. FAC, yeah. Again, to be fair, I think I could do this, uh, well, back in my heyday, and you probably could, too, if you didn't also have to think about the new timelines for air-to-air coming from Top Gun and, you know, all the other myriad of things you do in an F-18, even the F-14 towards the end. But if that were your mission, you could probably do it. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I can wing it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll jump in there and give it a try. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you. Sometimes I wish I could, but I guess those days are behind us. All right, dude. Well, I, said, I did say 01, though, didn't I? I think 01 was a Vietnam bird. L5, I think, is what I'm thinking of. There's so many. I, I don't know. I, I was at the Museum of Aviation at Robbins Air Force Base in Warner Roberts, Georgia, the other day, and there was some little, like I said, Piper Cub looking things with rockets on them. And of course, they're all on display now in the museum, but. They flew FAC-A missions in some pretty crazy little, very lightweight airplanes. But they were also, uh, they were slow, but they could also turn inside themselves just about. So they could fire a rocket and then turn around, and they were also treetops. True statement. Yeah. Treetops helped. Yeah. Yeah, quite a bit. (laughs) All right, dude. Well, I think I cut you off way back at the beginning of what you're doing now. So tell us that, and what's the future hold for you? Yeah, so now I'm flying with a, a logistics company. Okay. It's not the same dynamic flying, but I still love to fly. Yeah, do you? So, so I enjoy it. Yeah, I still right. love to fly. Do you have an airplane? In fact, on? Today was fun. So yeah. we you know, flew into San Diego today, which is, a, as you probably well know, is a, is a neat little airport. It is, yeah. That parking structure right at about 200 feet from the runway is... Uh... Right on center line, pretty much. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Are you doing any flying on the side? I haven't really done much yet. I, I do own a, my, my own airplane. I have a little Mooney. Oh, okay. Uh, so I fly that on occasion. Right. I did get my CFI, though. Uh, so maybe I need to... Oh, Maybe I need to start doing that. I Supplement don't know. your income? <laughs> well, I'll just have a little fun, I think. I don't think I'm going to make enough right. money being a CFI to matter. You came back from Cuba, and you reside now on the East Coast, and you've got a gig with a logistics company. Your family's doing great. I mean, is that it? Your <laughs> credits are rolling, huh? <laughs> Happy ending? Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. I, yeah, I suppose so. All right. Well, I'm going to see if we can't rope you into more opportunities here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast because we're growing pretty crazy. And, you know, as I look back at my career, I think we talked about this last time you were in town. I wish I could say over 25 years, I have more than just two. But really, when I think back to my career, there's two close friends and I count you as one of them. So I appreciate that, Joe. Thank you. Yeah. You and I, you and I shared some pretty special moments, both uh, in my professional and personal development. <laughs> Good. Well, the feelings are mutual. And so at any rate, we'll see if we can't uh, drag you into this whole thing. And, uh, you know, before we let you go, we always ask all our guests, uh, how did someone come up with chili cold pepper? I think, you know, because it's spelled C-H-I-1-L, right? Yeah, 1-L. Uh, so it's not like cold. It's like a chili pepper. It's like a so. hot pepper. All right. So give us the call sign story. Well, as you probably know, <laughs> I don't have one of those really colorful call sign stories. I mean, no, that's a good you, thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. Exactly right. It's a good thing. <laughs> as you well know, 
there are generally two places call signs come from. You did something worthy of uh, of getting one, mm-hmm. uh, or you got a, you got something to do with your name that right. just can't be avoided. Yeah. Uh, so Jello Iello, somewhat unavoidable, I suppose. Uh, also kind of clever though. It's unique. It's got a good like roller coaster ride to it. Yeah. yeah. So my last name is Culpepper. I went through several variations of uh, of something pepper over my career in life, and uh, chili pepper's the one that stuck. Chili pepper, not Short salt and pepper or something? Not salt and pepper, okay. chili pepper. Because I know another chili, but his is spelled differently, and his last name is Winter. Winter. Yeah, he's, so he's cold. Singular, well, yeah, he and I refer yeah. to each other as a cold and hot chili. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, bud. We might have to do a part two, because I'm sure the listener is going to tell us, wait, you didn't talk about this, you didn't talk about that, but I thought this was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on the show today, and unless you got any parting shots, I think we can wrap it up and get out of here. Yeah, I think your listeners might also have a correction or two for us. It's, it was really funny going back through all this stuff and trying to uh, uh, re-engage those brain cells that I haven't used in a while. Yeah, well, that's uh, okay. In a, what is an incredibly complex and vital mission. Indeed. And well, maybe we'll just time. have to revisit it again. I've got a, a, a Marine friend, Chip Burke, remember him? Oh, yeah. Uh, so so I've been trying to get him on the show, and maybe we can get him to come on and talk about it, because he did some fac stuff, using yeah. your terminology, uh, with the Anglico, which we haven't talked about. We'll let Chip take care of that. Absolutely. So I keep mentioning him, but it's because the listeners keep asking for him. So we'll see if we can get him to come on, and <laughs> we'll make him listen to this first. Cool. <laughs> hey, Ed, Joel, thanks again. It was, a, it was a real pleasure. We left a lot of stuff on the table to talk about later. Let's do it. All right. All right. See ya. Hey, Jello, what an interview, huh? Just uh, really enjoyed Chili and his discussion of JTAC, FAC, FAC-A, basically all the danger close stuff, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, just how consequential is that? You know, you mess up by a couple seconds and... Or a couple feet. Or a couple feet, great point, right. and then the blue guys get punished. So, yeah, well, yeah. this is the real deal. I mean, you are supporting others, not just glorifying yourself up there in the air. You're helping the folks on the ground, and it's consequential. I, yeah, no doubt about it. So tighten me up. You said at the very beginning, way back at the pre-roll, that it's joint terminal attack controller? Because yeah. I think we said it wrong, or I did, in the interview. Oh, yeah, potato, potato. But you're absolutely okay. right. Yeah, so it's joint terminal attack controller. There may have been a joint terminal air controller. Uh, okay, Kind gotcha. of erroneously. Thrown and in then there. let's see. We were debating whether we're going to try to do this, so let's give it a try. So if you're going to get this qualification Everybody starts Uh-oh. as a JTAC. Yes. Right? Yeah. And then if you're an aviator, you become a FAC. Mm-hmm. And then if you do what Chile and others have done and you get this call in the air, you're a FAC A. That's how I understand. So okay. the, the big family, if you will, is going to be right. JTAC. Smaller subset would be FAC. Even smaller subset would be FAC A. Okay. Gotcha. At least I hope I got that right. All right. I think so. Yeah. And of course, we have some new terms we'll throw in the glossary. And by the way, last time we recorded Sunshine, yes. a lot of feedback. People use it. They like it. They like the glossary? Yeah. Well, plus also Yannick, our expert dude on our team, who's like our website guru. Yeah. He's like, uh, by the way, I can just show you the metrics on how many people visit that page. I was like, oh, oh well, the beeps and, We didn't look at the <laughs> matrix, dude. All the beeps and squeaks. No, no, metrics. Yeah. Not the matrix. No, 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 no. But you look at the matrix, which is the alliterative metrics. Ooh, Ooh all right. Tricky. Never mind. All right. Anyway, we will throw in <laughs> CAS, FAC, FAC A, and all that stuff. And yeah, I really learned a lot. And we deliberately did not talk too much about close air support as far as execution yeah. goes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we'll probably, I don't know, Joe, we'll have another episode someday. We'll talk about close air support. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be very interesting. I know particularly our DCS players out there who do this at home in their mock-up cockpits, they like to know, well, what did you do? Like literally, how did you oh, do it? Oh, the mechanics of right. it. Whether it be the wheel and the timing and all that yep. stuff. So yeah. how we put it into our HSI as far as waypoints go, your yes. target 
TOT and your ground speed and all that. And then later, of course, came a little too late for me to really learn how to use was the cast page where the data could be uplinked to you. So yeah, on a future episode. Yeah, that's a great call. There's a DA cast, digitally aided cast. Oh, very good. Yes. Which has got the cast page, if you will, as mm-hmm. we call it. And then there's also Rover, right? Oh, so that's going to be the, uh, basically just layman's terms here is guy on the ground is going to be able to see my FLIR images because mm-hmm. I transmit them to him. Whoa. And that way, talk-ins are actually a lot easier. When he gives me a unit of measure and talks mm-hmm. about anchoring points and all that, he and I share the same screen. So it actually, to me, it really opened up the picture and the capabilities for cats. Ah, so to Chili's point, if he'd have sent that video that he had, or he didn't have it, but had he been able to, the yeah. guy may not have said, okay, the red roof, because he could exactly, see Exactly, with said. all the cities there. Oh, uh, very good, okay. <laughs> yeah, dude, picture's worth a thousand words, a video's sure. worth a million. Okay, yeah, you got it. excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Chili, for coming on the show. And uh, next time you're laying over in San Diego, look us up, and we'll uh, hopefully get you back on the show. Maybe we can do a Facebook Live. He'd be a Ooh, good candidate. He would, I think, yeah, that, dude. So. He would, he's a great storyteller. Excellent. Well, now it's time to check in with our friend Matt Wagner of Eagle Dynamics down in the scorching desert of the southwest of the United States to find out what's new in Digital Combat Simulator world. What's up, Matt? Hey, Vincent. So it's summer, and this is when we usually take a lot of our vacations, so things tend to slow down a bit. But uh, nevertheless, things are still uh, definitely cooking along. So on the Hornet front, uh, we released the first iterations of the Lightning targeting pod as well as the Harpoon, which we'll see uh, further advancements as the uh, summer goes along. And then the next weapon after that is going to be the uh, AGM-62 uh, Walleye. And in parallel, we also have other systems we're still working on, of course, like a trackwall scan radar, uh, the air-to-ground mode of the radar, and further modes for the harm and GPS weapons like the JDAM and JSAL. On the Viper front, a lot of the work is uh, still in the art in the systems. Uh, for the external art, a lot of work on the gears and the underside of the aircraft and in the cockpit, uh, the big focus there is kind of behind the ejection seat. And then uh, mode-wise, we have uh, CCIP and CCR bombing working right now, as well as strafing. And the next big push on that is going to be the air-to-ground rockets and just the uh, stores management system, the SMS uh, overall. Also, a lot of work on tuning the flight model, particularly on the departures. And uh, probably, I'm hoping late this week, if not next week, I'll be releasing the first big academic video on the Viper, which will be a big uh, orientation video of the cockpit. Uh, another big project we're going to course is the uh, big supercarrier project. And a lot of work there is uh, a lot of it's tuning the artwork, uh, the carry overall, and particularly the LSO station to be very highly detailed, which you can occupy uh, just, you know, both normally in a 2D monitor, but uh, particularly as a, in a VR environment, which should be uh, pretty cool. And we're also working on the self-defense systems, of course, you know, the CWIS and the, the RAM and things like that. And then animation-wise, most of the focus there is on the animation for launch operations on CATS 3 and 4. And then also the specific animations for the holdback bar for all the catapults. And then finally, uh, the good news is, as uh, you may be aware, the comms for the carrier are pretty much done now uh, for both uh, Case 1, Case 2, and Case 3. And I'll probably have a Case 2 video coming up. And then finally, on the World War II front, uh, a lot going on there as well. Uh, the P-47 Thunderbolt's up and flying internally and moving along quite fast. And a nice uh, target for that is going to be a new uh, a- uh, AI JU-88. So, uh, again, despite the summer being a bit of our slow season, things are definitely uh, moving along pretty darn fast. Sweet. Thanks for the update, Matt. 
Well, let's see. What else is there, Sunshine? You know, I said at the beginning that we are messing with our audio, and so if everyone likes it, hopefully it sounds good. We can thank our friend Rob Kibbe. You remember him? He helped us yeah. with our year-end wrap-up. Good old Last Hot Rod guy, December. right? Yeah he's, yeah, he's got the Muscle Car Place podcast network, and he and his team helped us produce this. They actually produce a lot of different podcasts, and so now they're handling the editing and audio mixing for us. So if you like what you hear, let us know, and you can also check them out at themusclecarplace.com. Nice. And... Uh, uh, hopefully, we're going to use them going forward because, frankly, it takes some of the work off of me, and they do it better. He's got a professional team over there. Dude, he's got it all wired, doesn't he? He's got it figured out. That's right. I'll say that. Awesome. Well, this is the part in the show where we always like to remind our listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. We want to say a special thanks to our new Patreon strike leads, Ike Temple, Martin Pring, Angus Humphreys, and new mission commander, Gilbert Madrid. So, Sunshine, I think that's going to do it for this episode, buddy. I agree, Jello. What do we always say? Well, let's get out of here. All right. See you. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.